Praise God, huh? Great morning to be together. Welcome if you're new with us. I'm so glad you're here. And if you're not new with us, I'm glad you're here too. Glad we can be together today and worship the Lord. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John 15, verse 18. John 15, verse 18. We'll get there in a sec. Over the past month, we've been reading about... Uh, the section of scripture in which Jesus describes what it's like to have a living, um, healthy, active relationship with God. And he uses a word to explain that. He uses this word over and over again, and the word is abide. And abide means to remain in something or to live in something. Kind of like you abide in your house. That's your dwelling place. Well, Jesus tells us to abide in him through faith. To make him our dwelling place through faith as he abides in us. And he tells us to abide in his words as his words abide in us, as they make their home in us. And he tells us to abide in his love. He wants us to live in his love as his love at the same time lives in us. And when we abide in Jesus and when he's abiding in us, he says this. He says that his presence and his words and his love, they kind of pulse through us like uh, the living energy in, inside a healthy branch. And his love and his presence and his words will also flow out of us onto others. And he said all of this to his 11 closest disciples. It was his last night on earth. And he was preparing them and us for a mission. His, his mission for his followers, God's mission, is to bring glory to God by making disciples of all nations. And we should do this, he says, with a spirit of self-sacrificing love and as we spread the truth of God's word, which he's given to us. And so, what a wonderful way to spread the good news of God. With, he says, with humble service to one another, with... Um, Compassion by showing mercy to other people, by being filled with the spirit, the peace of God, uh, by uh, doing all of this for our joy, which he says. I mean, this sounds wonderful. How could the mission possibly go wrong? I mean, who, who wouldn't want to know the truth about a God who loves us so much that he voluntarily died to clean up our mess-ups? that he went to the cross to rescue us from sin and eternal death, and then that this God rose again from the dead in order, to, in order to pour out more grace onto us forever for the glory of his name and for our joy. This is awesome. Wouldn't the whole world be elated to hear this incredible news? No. Jesus says the world would not be elated to hear this great news. The world would, in fact, hate this news. And whoever shares this news, the world would hate. He says, because the world hated him first. That's what Jesus is going to talk about here in John 15. Let's ask him to bless us as we read his word. Dear Lord, we need your help today. Um, we thank you for putting the Bible in our language so that we can know who you are and what you've done and, and how we are part of the story here. The story doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around you. But we are, we're made in your image. We're your image bearers. 
and we can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus to shine your glory on this planet and, and into eternity. And so we thank you, God, for leaving your home of heaven, for coming to earth to pull us out of the darkness, to pull us into the kingdom of light. And nothing about your mission was easy. It cost you everything. You were slaughtered by a world that you created that rebelled against you. And this darkness persists today. It resists you. It resists your followers. So we ask, we believe that this word, your word is living and active, that it's breathed out by you. We ask that you would use it to break through the darkness, penetrate the darkness today, and show us your glory. Protect us, Lord, from the evil one. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll look at John 15, verse 18, through John 16, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know after the service and we'll connect you with a good one. Um, Let's read the whole passage and then we'll go back to it and look at it one verse at a time. Jesus says this to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus says, let's let's start by looking at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Okay, the world. Who's this world that hates us? D.A. Carson explains that the world refers to the created moral order that God created, okay, that's in active rebellion against God. That's the the world. So when Jesus talks about the world here, he's not just talking about planet Earth. He's not talking about... um, the bigness of our planet, he's talking about the badness of the planet, 
the badness of the world, the badness of the creation that he created, which is now morally opposed to him. Obviously, the world is a really big place by human standards, but more significant than its bigness is its badness. And that's one thing that the Apostle John brings out over and over again. It doesn't mean that human beings are as bad as they could possibly be by God's grace. Uh, it, it simply means that all of humanity and the morality of this world has been corrupted. It's been warped by sin. And sin is disobedience to God. If, if we had obeyed God as humans, who our God who is perfect, if we'd obeyed him from the beginning, then our world would be perfect. But humanity hasn't done that. We thought it was better not to do that. We thought it better to worship ourselves, to worship each other, and to worship the world around us than to worship our maker and to worship him exclusively. And so God, our maker, has given us what we told him we wanted most. He's handed us over to what we've worshiped. He's handed us over to the darkness And as a result, we live in a world characterized by darkness. We live in a world that no longer wants the light. It does not want to be exposed to the light. It does not want God. Jesus says this in John 3, verses 19 to 20. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So the world doesn't even want to know that it's in the darkness. It wants to be like these little creatures that we find when we're gardening under rocks that just want to be in the darkness. And as soon as the light exposes them, they crawl wherever they can to find darkness. That's what the world is like. It hates the idea. The world hates the idea that there are objective truths about right and wrong that exist. Instead, the world wants to be independent of God so that it can make its own rules and therefore be accountable to nobody. And this is how it's been since the first generation of humans. We make our own rules. The world hates the idea of there being one perfect holy God who's worthy to be worshipped and who tells us what is right and what is wrong. And so when Jesus came to earth and when he claimed to be this one perfect God who legislates morality, and when he then told the world that it needs to repent because it's doing what's wrong, the world responded by hating him. But he didn't hate us back. He demonstrated instead his own love for us in the face of our hate for him. He came to bear our hate, to bear our sin on the cross, to put our hate for God to death on the cross so that sin could no longer condemn us, so that our hate for God would no longer condemn us to hell and separation from God. And how did we respond as humanity to Jesus' death on the cross? By hating Jesus still. And so, he says this, if we, his followers, are hated by the world for following Jesus, we've got to remember that the world hated Jesus first. 
That's strong language. We don't use that word very often in our house. We tell our kids, let's use the word dislike. Because hate is like the most extreme word you can use to talk about despising something. The world hates God. And then in verse 19, Jesus goes on to explain why the world hates Christians. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus tells believers that if you belonged to the world, then the world would love you, okay? If the world was still your master, if that was who you answered to, if the world still owned you, then the world would love you. Because if you belonged to the world, then your values would be the same as the world's values. What you treasure most would be the exact same thing that the world treasures most. But you don't belong to the world anymore, he says. Like spiritually, you don't belong to them. You did. Satan, the ruler of the world, is no longer your master, Christians. Because this is what Jesus did on the cross. He killed the contract of sin that enslaved us to the ruler of the world. And Jesus transferred our ownership to God again. Because of Jesus, you belong to God now, Christians. You don't belong to the world anymore. It doesn't... It doesn't own you, and its ruler doesn't own you. And that's why it hates you. And that's why the ruler of the world hates you, because it does not own you anymore. He will do everything he can to try to get you away, uh, to fall away from God. In verse 19, Jesus says that you don't belong to the world because what did Jesus do? He chose us out of the world. We were in the world. But he chose us out of the world. And remember, he used the same language just a few verses ago in verse 16. He says, he, he chose you and pulled you out of the world so that, what? What was the purpose? So that you would now live in Jesus, abide in Jesus, and bear the fruit of Jesus in your life. And what does this fruit of God, this fruit of Jesus do? What does it look like? Well, it illuminates the darkness. It stands out in the darkness. And so the darkness doesn't even like the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces because it exposes the darkness. I was talking to a friend last week who said that, you know, he started his day off by just counting his blessings, which is a great thing to do. And, and he just had a joyful day at work because he was genuinely thankful for God's love and friendship. You know, it's one of those days where God just like blesses you and you're just thankful. And he was not trying to be fake happy, right? He was just genuinely happy because of the Lord. And his coworkers saw this and they saw his happiness and they teased him about it because they couldn't stand his joyfulness. They couldn't stand his joyfulness. It wasn't something they had. And when he explained why it was, they didn't like that. They didn't like that he had joy in God. Because the darkness pushes back against the light. It pushes back against God in all of, um, in all of the ways that God manifests himself in our life. Jesus says in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he reminds us here that a servant's not greater than his master. Uh, Earlier he said that if he bows down, remember when he washed the disciples' feet, he said, if I did this for you, you, think about what you should do for one another. And here he says that uh, if I'm persecuted, then you're going to be persecuted too. Persecute. It means to harass, to hunt down, and to attack. So if you belong to Jesus, this is what he says, then this world will persecute you just as they persecuted him. Uh, And persecution looks so many different ways in our world. I remember, man, beginning to be persecuted in junior high for my faith in God. And it could be people teasing you. It could be people making fun of you. It could be people physically hurting you. It could be people putting you to death. And it's no secret, unfortunately, that America is increasingly becoming a place where Christians are persecuted for their faith. Um, I watched a really good documentary this week on Amazon Prime called The Free Speech Apocalypse. And it shows how the Bible's teachings which have ironically undergirded our nation since its inception, are now being rejected as hate speech because God says that some things are right and some things are just wrong. (laughs) That's why it's being rejected. This year, Russia made it illegal for Christians to share their faith outside of church. That's a big deal. In North Korea, over 200,000 Christians have disappeared since 1953. In similar stats, we know we could list them about all sorts of other countries. Go to persecution.org and you can read about that and follow up on, on what's going on right now in our world. In verse 20, Jesus says this. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he connects it with the next sentence. He contrasts it. He says, if anyone in the world kept my word, then they will also keep your word. Because Jesus' word is our word, if we're his disciples. And I think it's really interesting here that Jesus connects the idea of persecution to keeping his word. People who don't keep Jesus' word won't be persecuted because they don't abide in Jesus and his word. It's the people who hold to the truth of Jesus' word that will be persecuted because they're abiding in the one who the world hates. And since the world hates him, the world also hates his word. The world actively rebels against Jesus by persecuting anybody who holds to the truth of his word. A few weeks ago, we defined this word of Jesus. We defined it four different ways, but the big idea is that it's essentially Scripture. It's the Bible in this context. It's all of um, Scripture, which was breathed out by God, written down by people, and it centers around the teachings that Jesus spoke, and those center around the gospel message of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, and that centers around Jesus who is the word of God, the message of salvation for all who believe, and the world hates the word of Jesus, and it hates the Bible. 
when we trust in Jesus and when we welcome him into our lives, like if that's legit, like if you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you want him to be in your life, Jesus doesn't enter your life as this timid, accommodating guest who is pleased to be one of many guests who add some insights into your life. Jesus is God, and he enters your life as the voice of God, the word of God, who boldly and lovingly tells you what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false and what is holy and what is unholy. He comes into our lives with authority and commands, not with suggestions. When you read the Bible, think of it, this is God talking to us. So if you think you can abide in God's word and at the same time, you can align with the world and its ideologies and religions that oppose God's word, you're fooling yourself here. That's what Jesus says. You cannot treasure the values of this world and treasure God at the same time. Because the world doesn't treasure God. It doesn't treasure what he says. And this is why, this is why the world loves the idea of an all-merciful Jesus who eats with sinners, who condemns nobody, and who demands nothing of the world. That Jesus is so appealing because that is a man-made Jesus. That is a gagged Jesus. The world loves him because he says nothing. And that is not the true Jesus. Praise God, praise Jesus that by his amazing grace, he came and he ate with sinners. But read the Bible. It says he came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't say, oh, sweet, this is all good. He said, you guys, this is messed up. You need to follow me. You need to turn from your sin. You need to stop rebelling against your maker. And then he went to the church, the synagogue. He went to the religious people, not because he agreed with them, but he told them, you guys need to, you guys need to repent from your religion because you think that you're better than everybody because of every, all the good works you do and that somehow that's going to save you. Praise God, Jesus meets us where we're at. We don't have to get our lives together in order for him to save us. He saves us where we're at in our present state of sinfulness, but he loves us way too much to allow us to live in our sin. If he wanted us to live in our sin, he would have come as a gag to God. He wouldn't have come the way he did, and he wouldn't have given us his word. The world will love you if you are a lukewarm Christian who preaches that God is loving, but he's not holy. The world will love you if you claim that some of God's word is true, not all of it is, as if you and I have the authority to tell God that some of his word isn't true. <laughs> but if you treasure the word of God, if you treasure the God of the Bible for who he really is, then you can expect persecution. You can expect to be harassed. You can expect to be hunted down and attacked because you're holding up the light in a dark world. And the darkness is not just, this is the picture that we read over and over. It's not like there's the light and then the darkness around it. 
The dark opposes the light. It wants to put it out. Will we Christians in the 21st century keep God's word? Will we hold on to it? Will we agree with God's word that says that some things are right, what God says is right is right, and some things are wrong. What God says is wrong is wrong, and we don't progress from that. It's just universal truth. One of the blessings that takes some of the pressure off uh, off of us as Christians is that we are messengers. Get that? We're not the one who wrote it. We are the ones who deliver it. And so we don't need to come up with the message. We've got it. We just share the message. The question is this. Will we share the message God has given us? Will we stick to it? Will we stick to the Bible? Will we stick to the gospel? Because Christians and churches left and right are abandoning this. They're abandoning God's word, compromising, taking pride in being progressive because they think that's what's best. But that's, that's not what's best. That's what's worst. And history is going to show this. God's word must be for you and me as individuals and for our church what shapes everything that we think and speak and do and the way that we view reality. So this, what this means is this. We have to reject the rhetoric because our world has lots of words. All the time, we're hearing messages, words, billboards, TV commercials, ads on our phones, whatever. We have to reject the rhetoric of every author, pastor, teacher, professor, artist, politician, talk show host, or talking head that tells you that God's word is bogus. Or that it's not important. Or that we've overemphasized its worth. Reject that. <laughs> Doesn't mean you have to be mean to those people. It means that's just bogus. I love you, but that's baloney, okay? In verse 21, Jesus, he says this, but all these things that they will do to you, uh, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So what this means is that people and governments and religions and ideas and ideologies will hate you and persecute you on account of what? On account of Jesus' name. On account of the name of God. Not on account of your name. On account of God's name. People will attack you and harass you if you bear the name of God. If you're owned by Jesus... You will be persecuted because you don't belong to the world anymore and because by God's grace you're trying not to do things the way that the world does things if they're wrong, right? But what a privilege it is, really, to be hated because you're so closely identified with Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 21 that the world will persecute you on account of his name because, this is the reason why they persecute you, the world does not know the one who sent Jesus. The one who sent Jesus is God the Father, the creator of the universe, the creator of our world, the creator of you and me. The world doesn't know him. So they persecute you. They persecute us because 
they're lost. They're dead to God like we were. Pity those who persecute you. (laughs) Pray for your persecutors because they don't know God. Just like you and I once didn't know God. They don't have eternal life. They're not saved. They're owned by the world. They're lost in sin. They're blinded by Satan is what the Bible says. They're headed to hell unless they repent. Just like all of us were. And then in verse 22, Jesus, he reveals the level of their guilt really intensely. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So he's not saying that our persecutors would be guilty of no sin uh, had Jesus not come to them, because obviously everybody's guilty of sin. He's talking specifically about the people who rejected Jesus, persecuted Jesus, after he had come to them in the flesh and spoken to them in person. Those people, that generation is guilty for the specific sin of rejecting God in human flesh. Wow. And then Jesus again connects the world's hatred of him to to their hatred of God the Father. In verse 23, he says, whoever hates me hates my Father. So we, we need to see here, this helps us understand religion, especially when you're like, well, how come all religions can't go to heaven? How come, you know, what about people, you know, all this? Well, think about this. This is what Jesus is making John really clearly. There is an unbreakable link between Jesus and God the Father. The Muslims ref- accept God the Father, but they reject Jesus. The Jews accept God the Father, but they reject Jesus. New Age religions accept God, but they reject Jesus of the Bible. And what Jesus says is that if you hate me, you hate God. If you hate God the Father, then you hate me. You cannot say that you love and worship God if you don't love and worship Jesus. Whoever hates Jesus and does not worship Jesus also hates God the Father and doesn't worship God. And that's not hate speech, that's reality. (laughs) That's the truth of Jesus' word. And he continues in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So those who hate Jesus hate God because Jesus is God. And that specific generation of people who were alive in Palestine when Jesus was on earth in the flesh, those people who saw Jesus' works, who heard Jesus' words, and then said, nope, crucify him. That's on their heads, and that's on humanity. And likewise, those of us today, this very day, who hear Jesus' word and hear everything that he's done to save us and then reject Jesus... You're responsible for that. That is on your head. (laughs) Or you turn to Jesus who took it on himself for you. I love that Jesus says in verse 24, I did the works that no one else did. (laughs) I love that. That's a little phrase you could just pass by. But think about that. He's saying, I'm the one and only. I'm the one and only God. It's one of my favorite titles for Jesus in the first chapter of John. It's Jesus, the one and only, capital O, capital O. It's awesome. 
Only Jesus turned water into wine. Only Jesus walked on water. Only Jesus healed six people from 20 miles away. Didn't even see them. He's like, go check on them. They're okay. Only Jesus called a rotting corpse back to life and waited long enough to make sure it was rotting so the people could believe him. Only Jesus brought his own rotting body back to life. Jesus did the works that nobody else did, and he's saying, I want you to receive this. I want you to have the same power in your life, the same victory over death, the same freedom over sin in your life. This is what I'm offering you. And so instead of rejecting Jesus, instead of persecuting him and his followers like the rest of the world, submit to him. Submit to his authority. It's a great authority. It's the perfect authority. He's your maker and he loves you. When you're trusting Jesus, you're trusting in the, bud, in, in, the, in the one who wants the best eternal things for you and who has done everything to purchase those things for you and who is actually able to give you all of that and more. Pray to him and ask him to save you from your sin. And as you follow Jesus in this life, on this world, you can trust his promise that he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, even when you're attacked, even when you're harassed on account of my name. I'm with you. And, get this, he says, I'm in control of all of it. He told Pilate, you couldn't do any of this unless I gave you the power to do this. God is so in control that we read here, even the persecution of his enemies is under the guidance of his sovereign hand. Verse 25, he says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So he says, their law, in the sense that, okay, so these are the Jewish Pharisees, they know the law better than everybody else, even though it's God's law, right? And what he's doing is this. He's talking specifically about the Jewish people who by persecuting Jesus actually fulfill the very law that they said wasn't about Jesus. Under God's, Jesus' providential hand, the Jews persecuted Jesus in order to validate that Jesus is the Messiah. Even the persecution is under his hand. And then in addition to advancing his kingdom through this prophetic persecution, he also says that he's going to advance his kingdom by sending the Holy Spirit to help Christians when they're persecuted. So in verses 26 to 27, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus told the disciples who were with him here from the beginning of his ministry, they'd been with him since the beginning of his public ministry, that he would send his Holy Spirit to help them in their missionary efforts. And he did. And likewise, Jesus tells us, to you and me, that while we share his word, even amidst persecution, the Holy Spirit will help us. The Holy Spirit comes from the Father, the Spirit of the Father, and the Spirit validates every truth that Jesus ever spoke. You want validation? 
How about God validating his own word? (laughs) When we share God's word, okay, this is why the word is crucial. You and I don't share our words. We share God's word. Because when we share God's word, the Holy Spirit works through his word to accomplish his purposes in the lives of saved people and unsaved people. The Holy Spirit speaks through his word both to those who love Christ and to those who hate Christ. It's kind of a funny thing. I read the the first verse where it says, uh, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And I was like, I was kind of like, do you ever wonder why Jesus told us this? (laughs) Why did he tell us the world is gonna hate us? I mean, wouldn't he have gotten a lot more followers if he just didn't include that part? Um... But um, Jesus tells us now how it helps us to know that the persecution is coming. In chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He says that he's telling us ahead of time the world will hate us in order to keep us from falling away. He's serving us by doing this. He doesn't say this. Notice this. I told you about the persecution so that you can be on the lookout for bad guys and avoid death. No, Jesus tells us here that there's something far worse for us than being killed. Worse than being killed is falling away from Jesus. And to fall away from Jesus means to go astray from Jesus, to leave his side I strongly believe that it's very clear in the Gospel of John that you cannot lose your salvation once God regenerates you and justifies you and glorifies you in the sight of God. But I do believe that Christians can stray from Jesus. And you can leave his side foolishly. And we all do that in different ways during our day. And sometimes people do it more dramatically. But that is exactly what Satan wants us to do when we're persecuted. You see that? He's bringing the heat now. Satan is now bringing the heat on us. He's persecuting us. He's using everything that we can, or he can, to to bring us down, to make us give in, to say, to recant. Say, okay, I don't believe anymore, okay. He wants you to give in. He wants you to leave Jesus. Boy, that's not smart. We need to remember that. I mean, when you think about a shepherd and a sheep, you got a wolf over here howling at the flock, and then one of the sheep says, okay, I give in, I'm going off by myself. What's happening to that guy? He's done. But it's so appealing because we hear and feel the persecution. We say, I don't want to suffer anymore. This hurts. Suffering is hard. But Jesus' words here are meant to help us endure it to endure persecution. He tells us first, this is how it helps us. First, remember I was persecuted first. So I know how you feel. I I can minister to you and help you like nobody else can because I've been through persecution even to much greater degrees than you have. And also Jesus wants us to expect persecution because what does that do? makes you stand firm. 
It's like, okay, this isn't a game. This is a battle. I got to have my armor on. He's saying it's not a game. You're going to be persecuted. Are you going to stand firm against the wiles of the devil? And he wants you to know this. It's not abnormal to be persecuted for Jesus. It's abnormal not to be persecuted for Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. And he wants us to know that because he doesn't want us to give in to Satan and fall away from God and believe the lie that it will be easier for us if we just recant and don't follow Jesus. And then in verse two, he describes what this persecution will be like. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whomever or whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So remember the the first disciples here, they were all Jewish. The synagogue was the center of social life. And so for them to be put kicked out of the synagogues means to be excommunicated. To be excommunicated from their religion, from their faith, from their family, their friendships. Where do you go in the middle of the desert if you're excommunicated from the synagogue and you're a Jew? And in the same way, this will happen to many of us. Many of us will be rejected by our families kicked out of social circles on account of Jesus. We might have family members who no longer talk to us because of our faith. We might have coworkers and friends who no longer invite us to social gatherings we used to go to. We might be harassed at work because of our beliefs. And some of you, especially guys, Got to be careful what I say here. But some of you are in very chauvinistic environments. And if you are holding the light, then the world and those in the world around you want to see you stumble. They would love to see you fall. And you're going to be in the pressure cooker. If you, if you start really f- following Jesus and abiding in his word at your workplace, you'll be persecuted for that. I'm not saying look for persecution. I'm saying expect it. God forbid, also, we may be kicked out of our churches someday because we love God's word. It's happened in the past. Brian talked about it last week. Jesus says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God So in the immediate context, Jesus is talking about, when we hear about the hour, he's talking about the upcoming hour of his death on the cross. So what happened on his death? Well, the crowds shouted to have Jesus crucified, and after the crowd killed Jesus, what do we see happen in that gospel and in Acts that, who do they come after next? Jesus' followers, which is one of the reasons why the disciples are hiding immediately after his death. And we've also, we've seen this, happened throughout the past 2,000 years that the world will kill Jesus' followers and they will think they're offering a service to God by doing so. And it's important to remember this. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the created moral order that's in active rebellion against God. We're not talking about those who aren't part of religion. We're not talking about those who aren't Christian. Okay, we're talking about the world, which can include does include religions, institutions, ideologies. This is what D.A. Carson says. He says, whether in the first century or in the 20th century, 
or 21st century, Christians have often discovered that the most dangerous oppression comes not from careless pagans, but from zealous adherence to religious faith and from other ideologies. Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and even in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says in verse three to four, they will do these things because they've not known the Father, nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So the world will persecute Christians in all these ways because again, they've not known God. And how does Jesus define eternal life? To know God. So they don't have eternal life. We're not better than them. We're just forgiven and we have grace. We believe in God. And that's what we want for them too. And so when our hour of persecution comes, may we remember that Jesus told us this already and we're not alone. We're in good company because we're in the company of Jesus and we're in the company of his church. And Christians, let me tack this on at the end. Let's remember how Jesus has instructed us elsewhere to respond to those who persecute us. We should not hate them back, okay? We should pity their hell-bound souls. And I really feel like a Baptist pastor when I use that phrase, hell-bound souls. But that's reality. We pity the souls of people like ours. They're They're going to hell. That's where they're going. All this trying to be manly at work stuff and passing crude pictures around. Dude, that's so not good, (laughs) okay? (laughs) That is so silly and childish. You're not gonna be holding up your phone to God when you meet him face to face after this life and ask him how cool he thinks that is. You're going to hell without Jesus. That's reality. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is how we respond. Earthly vengeance is not God's way of doing things. We leave vengeance to the Lord. We don't have to act as doormats to our persecutors, but neither is our goal to destroy them. Our prayer is that God would give us the strength to endure suffering for the name of Jesus with courage and at the same time to pity our persecutors, to stand firm in the faith and to stay by Jesus' side. And as we wait for Jesus to either return or till he calls us home, these are his words in John 16, 33 for us. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the worlds you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In a moment we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray uh, as the deacons come forward. Lord, we thank you for this passage. and Thank you for choosing us out of the world and we pray that you would choose many more, God, that you would, it's hard for us to comprehend how this all happens, God, but we desire your name to be glorified and for all peoples to find joy 
in you and life in you. When we're persecuted, God, please keep us strong. Please strengthen us. Please help us to stand firm and not to give up, but to pray for our enemies, to love them, to stand up for the truth of the Bible, even though we don't have all the answers. We know you do, though. And we believe you when you say that your word is perfect and true. We pray, God, for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who, whose lives are at stake, who are in prisons right now for their beliefs, who are tortured, and who will be condemned to death for keeping your word and not recanting. That is reality for many people in our world. Please strengthen them and keep them by your side that they may not fall away, but trust you, God. Please strengthen us. Help us to be your lights in this dark world. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.